This is a special edition of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded in December 2016 at RMI's ELAB Annual Summit in Austin, Texas. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. This is a special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. One of RMI's initiatives is its Electricity Innovation Lab, or ELAB, an assembly of thought leaders and decision makers from across the U.S. electricity sector. ELAB focuses on collaborative innovation to address critical institutional, regulatory, business, economic, and technical barriers to economic deployment of distributed resources in the U.S. electricity sector. This is one of seven interviews I recorded with electricity sector experts in December 2016 in Austin, Texas, at the ELAB Annual Summit. The summit is a convening of electricity industry stakeholders, including state, federal, and local governments, utilities, regulatory agencies, renewables and DER companies, financiers, advocates, customers, and philanthropists that aims to advance the electricity system transformation toward a cleaner, more distributed, and more resilient grid for the 21st century and beyond. I'd like to thank RMI and ELAB for hosting this wonderful event in Austin and for inviting the Energy Transition Show to cover the event, which offered a unique opportunity to connect with these leaders in the electricity industry. So, on with the show. Our guest in this interview is Elizabeth Doris, the Principal Laboratory Program Manager for State, Local, and Tribal Programs at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL. Welcome, Liz, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks so much. It's nice to be here. So I'm a big fan of NREL, as regular listeners to this podcast know, and I have interviewed several current or former employees of our national labs on this show so far. But you are the first person I've interviewed with specific expertise in working with tribal governments on energy projects. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the particular energy challenges and opportunities that tribal governments have? Thanks so much for asking. I don't often get asked about NREL's extensive tribal work, and it's a real point of pride for our team that works with jurisdictions. So I think there are two things about working with tribes and clean energy that are really important and are the reasons that we do it. One is that as sovereign nations, tribes can really drive leadership in clean energy transformation. They have the capability and the interest in identifying solutions and technology and business solutions that can really trigger the transformation and therefore can be leaders and models for other jurisdictional types to implement those. The second half of that, and and I think probably the one that people typically expect us to start with, is that there's a real opportunity for 
helping with some of the economic challenges that exist on tribal lands in this country right now and using clean energy and energy efficiency as a way to normalize costs for tribes and to provide opportunity for economic development on tribal lands. Well, I'm sure there's lots of opportunity there. I I guess where I was really most curious is what is the attitude of tribes toward renewable energy? Well, I think that really varies, right? There are over 500 tribes in the geographic boundaries of the United States. And just like states and cities, there's a large variation in drivers. Sure. And where you stand depends on where you sit usually. Or <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of tribes with revenue generating fossil electricity and contributions in that area. And so we've been working with tribes since probably 1995, officially. But in 2011, we decided to take a look at what the potential for clean energy on tribal lands is. And what we found is that tribes have about 2% of the land mass of the United States, but about 5% of the technical potential for clean energy development. Hmm. Uh, So they're on really prime lands for clean energy development. And now we're working with tribes to capitalize on that capability. Okay. So switching context a little bit, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, you worked on energy infrastructure redevelopment in New Orleans. And I assume you were making a rather deliberate effort to build a more resilient energy infrastructure rather than just rebuilding what was there before, while trying to improve efficiency and integrate more renewables. So can you tell us a little bit about how the energy infrastructure rebuilt after Katrina was different than what existed before it? Yeah, I can. And and I'll say that the experience in New Orleans was certainly very formative to my career and how I view energy equity and energy access and also working with multiple stakeholders. One of the most impressive things, I think, about my New Orleans experience, what I learned by the time I got there two years after the hurricane, there was a very engaged stakeholder group of about 200 people. And people who listen to your podcast and who work with stakeholders groups know that 200 people is an awful lot of sustained interest in clean energy. And so that was really impressive to me. And I always like to mention it because it sort of changed the trajectory of my career and my thinking about energy. Mm. To answer your actual question, there was significant concern at the time, you know, there were still lights out and there were still street signs that weren't up. And this was, like I said, two years afterwards. And so there was significant concerns about equity. And I think those were probably the more driving concerns at the time than long-term infrastructure development, which is an interesting reaction to disasters. And it's one that today, I think the energy industry is much more sophisticated and mature in redeveloping for infrastructure. And also, I mean, it was 2007, the costs for clean energy were still very high. So we really focused on setting up a programmatic structure with the utility and the regulators, which was a subsection of the city council, that would be able to capture innovation as it moved forward. And I think that is something that is really important for regulators and utilities to think about as they think about these long-term programs, because then as you have less expensive infrastructure support coming into the market, disruptive technologies, disruptive programs, you can really capture those if you have the right regulatory setup. In terms of actual infrastructure that was rebuilt, how is it different? A lot of people did work on infrastructure rebuild in New Orleans. We did a lot of work on schools. 
another Mm. very important piece of the puzzle. And with our partners, we really wanted to contribute to schools that went well beyond code, that could serve as community centers in the event of another disaster of any kind. Mm. From that, we developed a series of guides for that particular microclimate, which is really, it's a very different climate. A series of guides for that microclimate and other microclimates for how you could economically, feasibly build schools that are well beyond code. So I think in terms of infrastructure, I would say community infrastructure to me is the piece that we really contributed to with clean Hmm. energy and energy efficiency in schools. So a lot more efficient buildings, obviously. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Was there more rooftop solar involved or anything like that? One of the challenges with rebuilding, one of the many challenges, is that you have people with really innovative ideas and you have to also think about very baseline solutions. So this may be too long a story for a podcast, but one of the things that happened while we were in New Orleans is a colleague of mine from DOE and I were driven around by a gentleman who grew up in New Orleans, who was then contracting to NREL, working with us on the ground there. And as we drove around, the colleague I was with from DOE got out and started to take some pictures in the Ninth Ward. And I was standing there with my NREL colleague and, you know, we were just chatting and I didn't even hear it until he mentioned it. But uh, he said, oh, someone's hammering in their house. And I said, and I said, yeah. And he said, I wonder if they have a building permit. Wow. And I thought that it was a really interesting, you know, you can talk about solar poured into concrete and solar lily pads. And those things are all really, really exciting. But I think when you're talking about a rebuild, you absolutely have to start with the buildings that are, in theory, going to be there for the next 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Wow, interesting. So at NREL, you've been involved with some of the cutting-edge issues in energy transition, such as the right way to value solar on the grid. That's something we've talked about quite a bit on this show. Quite a few observers have looked at the value of solar approach as the next frontier for integrating solar onto the grid after retail net metering. But it has some drawbacks, not least being that what you value and how you value it can actually be fairly subjective if you want it to be. So do you think that approach still has potential and is there any new research regarding the value of solar that we might discuss? Yeah, I definitely think that approach has value. I think that as we talk about this very exciting time of clean energy transition, we have to talk about modernizing our policy environments, right? And whether that's a refined form of net metering or its value of solar or it's any of the sort of other more niche solutions that are in play, I think that from a governance perspective and a policy perspective, which is my background, um, a very exciting time. I think exciting isn't exactly the word that people on the ground are using (laughs) to describe it at the moment. (laughs) But I think that the stakeholder engagement piece and the democratization of deciding what your community's values are as a community is actually a very powerful piece of what value of solar brings to the table. And so you use the word subjective, and and I think maybe subjective, maybe team building, you know, maybe understanding what the goals of the community are in in a deeper way and prioritizing your energy choices around those in partnership with your utility provider. I think value of solar offers a lot of those types of opportunities. And I have always thought that that is quite a from where I'm sitting, it is quite an elegant opportunity to do some community building. So I definitely think that there are opportunities in that. Well, I mean, what sort of valuations are we talking about here? Is is there any particular new research direction? 
We are currently at EdRail working more on details within the different aspects that might be part of that valuation. Mm-hmm. A colleague of mine, Paul Denholm, did some wonderful work doing these solar valuations can be not just emotional and stakeholder driven, but also very expensive to calculate. Um, And so he did some wonderful work looking at the different aspects that one might consider, and then also the different tools that you can use to evaluate those aspects. So if you decide, for example, that local air pollution is your priority, he provides sort of three different tools that you can use. One is sort of back of the envelope. If it's not that important to you, then, you know, just get a number. Mm-hmm. And one that is very high granularity. If it's very important to you, you probably want to invest in making sure you have a very specific and correct answer. We think that that's a, a really good way to think about so that you don't have to go all in on every different aspect. You can choose the ones that are most important to your community as a group and then establish those. I think that is a really interesting option. And of course, we've been following the Minnesota valuation of solar effort that is very interesting in the way that it's playing out. Do you think the Minnesota value of solar tariff can be a good model for the rest of the country? I certainly think that the stakeholder engagement piece of it was a really interesting sort of statewide strategy. And mm. I, I always look forward to democratic processes in energy decisions, because I think that's that's how we design and approach the future that we want as a country. Right. So I, I guess that's what I was trying to hint at when I said the word subjective, because really, I guess another way to put it, or maybe a more appropriate way to put it would be that there's a negotiation that happens there between what the community values, what the utility wants to value, how regulators see the question sort of from both sides. And somewhere in the middle of all that, you have to come up with an agreed upon set of things that you're going to value and how you're going to value them. I think there's a lot of really interesting details in there that maybe people just don't know enough about yet, or there isn't a well-established set of precedents for how you do that. Yes, I definitely agree. I think that the process is definitely a model that that could be used and refined, not just for solar valuation, but for a lot of different sort of energy decisions that are made. As we have a world of increasing connectedness and technological controls, people always say, I've sort of always vowed not to say these words, and now I'm saying them in a public space, but the internet of things Mm -hmm. and things like that. (laughs) You know, as we have more interconnectedness, I think being able to have processes that facilitate democratic decision-making are really, really important Yeah, yeah. on the energy space. I agree. Yeah. Another thing that you've been involved with at NREL is encouraging the implementation of residential demand response programs. And we actually discussed that with another former NREL researcher, Marissa Humman, in episode 27. Right. This is a fairly new sector, I think, since demand response up until now has mainly been happening in the commercial and industrial sectors where there are big power users. So what do you think the important questions are for residential demand response at this point? And do you think it has potential as a significant grid resource? So I do think it has potential as a significant grid resource. I think that we're seeing a lot of innovation in the startup space and in the technology space and how to do that, right? How to have demand response. So I think that the technology is either there or getting there, depending on where you sit at one of those companies. And I think where we need some work is in regulatory design approaches and how to sort of 
engage customers in that. There are some really very basic but innovative at the time they came through models, right? You have demand response on air conditioners, right? That the utilities have figured out how to monetize and how how to use to help balance the grid. So I think there are a lot of really great opportunities for that. The aggregation and the value streams and who is going to capture those value streams, I think, are areas that are still in play. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, what what do you think the important questions are in terms of how to get all that implemented at this point? I think that one of the important questions that needs answering is what are the values to different stakeholders Hmm. and some of that has been answered but you know like what are the values to different stakeholders and how are those captured for each of those stakeholders Hmm. the fairly blunt instrument of the one i'm most familiar with because i participate in excel energy's demand response air conditioner program i get a a check in October, they came in and installed this piece of equipment, and I get a check in October, and it's usually just a, a bill credit, and uh, we're not that efficient at my house. And then they can roll my air conditioner on and off without turning off the fan. I think we've never noticed it. Hmm. So, you know, that is a pretty blunt way to do that, and it's sort of a one-way, right? Like the old traditional utility mechanism, it's a right. one-way, right. and a little bit of a two-way when they cut me a check. But I think that we're going to be looking at multiple stakeholders, multiple values going in different directions, and I'm not totally sure that that has been worked out yet. Although I'm sure someone listening has a good idea. Well, <laughs> well I mean, give, give us an example, like a specific concrete example. Specific concrete example. I think that uh, we're sitting here. I don't know if your listeners know this, but we're sitting here at the eLab Summit, and I was just sitting in a room uh, prior to this talking about the potential for aggregating light fixture storage at the building level and then at the utility level. And so I think that could be, you know, I'm I'm a policy person and a technologist second, but I think those types of technology innovations where people are really trying to take control of their own usage and then, you know, trying to identify ways that can improve the livelihoods of everyone on the utility grid is an area that's really interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, specifically, one of the things that I often think about is the difference between having a direct utility control, like you were just talking about, where Excel can, you know, fiddle with the functioning of your air conditioner specifically, versus working through an aggregator. And the various companies out there that can do that, that can say, oh, well, we'll manipulate the lighting controls or the HVAC controls or whatever on these couple thousand buildings and they're playing an intermediary role there with the utility and there's different advantages and disadvantages to doing it each way Um, and I just sort of wonder like where is the market for demand response at the residential sector developing like in which direction are we going I I think that definitely remains to be seen there's a lot of There's a lot of blank space um, there and a lot of opportunity, I think, for innovation. I think that the commercial models are good models. You know, the last time we tried to do aggregation as a country in that vein, we didn't have the technology that we have now in terms of communication and data and all of that. And so I think I personally feel that that is a very ripe area. And one of the things that we're trying to do is help prepare in our programs, because we work with governments, help prepare governments to either capture that innovation or at least get out of its way Mm. for future customers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I see that DOE recently launched a new program called LabBridge 
that will make it easier for our national laboratories to transfer their innovative technologies to the marketplace, and that NREL has been selected to participate in four of the eight pilot projects and serve as a central connecting point for the transfer of knowledge between projects. I think that's pretty exciting stuff. It is one of the most exciting things that happened last year, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I guess my first question is, what took them so long? <laughs> so I think that the department has always been interested, particularly at its applied science labs, like the National Renewable Energy Lab, in providing technologies that have a draw in the market, right? So we have long had an interest in communicating with the market a few years ago, and as the leverage is an outgrowth a little bit of a program called LabCorp, which is a phenomenal program based on the i model. And it is an access point for our scientists working in the lab to actually speak with and trains them to speak with market and users who might want their product. So that is both technologists who would purchase their product in an entrepreneurial way, right? And it's also for end users to talk about a problem they have that a scientist could solve. And so I don't leverage is certainly not the first in the, in the generations of how DOE has tried to take federal research to the streets. But it is, I think, a really interesting strategy because what it does is take as the pace of innovation has increased in the energy and particularly the clean energy space, it takes the approach of using pilots, right? So short, fail fast kind of pilots, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not something that laboratories I think are known for Mm -hmm. broadly, but sort of fail fast pilots for how can you do this quickly and accurately. And so some of those pilots are looking at making it easier for the marketplace to engage with the labs. And some of them are looking at more quickly and in a measured way, having scientists recognize when something's going to be of use or not of use in the clean energy space and moving on quickly. So we'll know in about 18 months which of those pilots worked. We're doing the node, which is run out of NREL, identifying metrics that apply across all of those and working to figure out which ones are sort of the most impactful. So what are some of the specific technologies that are being piloted here? Well, and that's one of the really interesting things about this program. So it's not a technology-specific program. Okay. It is a humanity specific program. It is a, how can we, some of them, better train our scientists to think about the market when they are creating science, right? I think the entrepreneurial world that we live in these days, often it's sort of the go-to to start with the end user in mind. And so transitioning federal research in the Department of Energy's labs into thinking more about that while not sacrificing creativity for other solutions, right, for problems we don't know we have, um, is I think a really interesting way to try to innovate in the clean energy space. So training our scientists, making it easier for scientists to communicate with the market and making it easier for the market to access the labs is, I think, some of the really great innovations. Because then you're not talking about trying to pick a winner with a specific technology. You're talking about enabling an environment that can unleash innovation, Mm -hmm. which is far more cheesy than I intended it to be. (laughs) Um, I didn't realize I had a soapbox on that one, but I do. (laughs) So that's kind of my my feeling on Labridge. (laughs) So uh, a skeptical view of this idea of helping NREL to commercialize its technology would say, 
Yeah, but there's all these problems that entrepreneurs regularly face, and it's not going to be any different for NREL. Like, how can NREL shepherd these technologies over the so-called valley of death, for example, that lies between the successful demonstration of a new technology and really achieving commercial viability? Like, where is NREL's edge in dealing with that kind of a problem? Yeah, that's a huge challenge, right? For any, not just in energy, but in general, in technology and in innovation. And I think that, you know, one of the things we really focus on and have been focused on very strongly since about 2008 is increasing our partnerships in the marketplace. Because there's a role, I of course fundamentally believe there's a role for federal research and development. And I think that that role should be where there is more risk. And so one of the things we've been focused on since 2008 is creating a pathway for both understanding what the market needs, but more in reference to this question about getting technologies and pieces of technologies, right, innovations, into the hands of entrepreneurs and investors that are then willing to take on that risk. So reducing the risk enough in that technology to have it be picked up. Mm. I think that we live in a world where everything is expected to succeed all the time. And I just, I think that things succeed and things fail and things that fail come back 20 years later and succeed or succeed in different venues. And so I think accepting that, but also preparing the best technology we can based on the market challenges that we see and delivering that at the edge of our work, right, which is where the risk is reduced enough for private to take over, Mm -hmm. is where we've really been focused on smoothing that boundary. Oh, that makes sense. So lately, you've been working on ways to support energy transition at the city and state levels. And this, to me, seems like a particularly important focus, especially in light of the recent presidential election. So what kind of role do you think cities in particular should be playing or could be playing in energy transition? This is an area of particular excitement for me. You know, over the last few years, we have really been focused on the growth of cities worldwide. It's been an international focus and also in the United States. But we have an opportunity with cities to, and this sort of follows my whole democratization of energy sort of approach, to really enable people to have decision power over their energy needs in a variety of different ways. And so for me, the different layers of government, right? So you have your city government, your town council, your city government, your your regional councils, your states, and your federal government. Everyone, I believe, has a role to play. And that role, of course, shifts as our political makeup changes over time. And so I think the opportunity for cities now is to continue to enable their consumers and their constituents to have control over their own energy choices. And that's an opportunity. It's also a responsibility on the part of the consumer, on the part of the constituent. And so we are trying to provide decision-grade information to cities because data has been historically challenging to get for city decision-makers. Trying to provide that information such that they can sort of identify their own values in terms of their energy future and move towards those in a measured way. You're reminding me of some of, in a previous gig, I did some work with the state of Maryland and, you know, Martin O'Malley is a huge fan of data-driven government and I think really used that tactic very effectively to push energy transition forward in the state of Maryland. And I think also Michael Bloomberg was very successful in doing that kind of thing in New York. Right, with uh, New York One? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. 
one New York, I can't remember, but it was one of the things that was really inspiring to me as we went through, because we initially, we wanted to make sure there was a role for the lab. So we did a lot of interviews. We did a lot of focus groups of sort of where would the federal government be useful here? And and one of those areas was understanding how cities were making data-driven decisions and the New York experience and certainly the Maryland experience in terms of measuring impacts. Mm -hmm. It was not only sort of inspiring as a model for doing that, but also it is very difficult for us to bring value to cities in the way of talking about programs that work, because there isn't a lot of evaluation of those programs. But in cities like New York, and in places like Maryland, and certainly in California, and to a certain extent in Texas, you know, you've really looked at evaluation of those programs. And so you can say, okay, maybe you don't, well, you almost certainly don't look like Texas. Um, but maybe you don't look like Texas. But this is what worked in Texas. And, and with some changes to apply to your situation, it might work for you. And so the two values of that are actually measuring the impacts for the locality, but also providing some models for other cities that I think are now really coming into play. Yeah, and that's to me the really exciting part is, you know, how we can get away from this blank canvas, right? And we can start seeing, okay, well, here's what worked in these cities. Maybe we can do something similar or let's use the data-driven approach to figure out what should work for us. Because, you know, this really should not be a political or an ideological decision. It should be one based on Facts. Right, you yes. Know, yeah, just, that, that would be good. That would be great. Uh, can we just count the kilowatt hours <laughs> and see what's working here? Right. Know? Well, and one of the things I find really exciting about what we've been trying to do is when you get very detailed breakdowns of sort of current energy use data for cities, which you can get through either developing them yourself, developing your own data set, or the Department of Energy has an estimator called the State and Local Energy Data website, and you can kind of estimate your very detailed city-level data there. You can then say, okay, this program worked really well in Greenwich, Connecticut, and we can map their demographic makeup to our demographic makeup and our utility type, and then understand where specifically we need to tweak the program to make it work for our mm-hmm. area. So mm-hmm. we're not just taking programs and trying to make them work in other locations. You're actually identifying where you could tweak them to make them work better, which is, I think, really helpful. Yeah, but an important task there is to get that knowledge transfer happening, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So how is that going to get done? So I think- how, how do, Like if I were a city manager of, I don't know, Kansas City, Missouri, like how am I going to find out what people in other cities have done and then figure out what's transferable to my domain. Right. Beautiful, beautiful Kansas City. (laughs) So, you know, that is, I think, a big challenge, especially as city governments are increasingly resource constrained. They are not able to go out and seek those out. There are several venues, though. There are multiple foundations and and different nonprofit groups. And to a certain extent, you know, we post what we find on our website, but that's sort of it's a, it's a busy space, but that are convening groups of city stakeholders. You know, I just was recently at uh, an Institute for Sustainable Communities meeting where they had six cities and they had six different people from each of those cities. Those people often don't even get to talk to each other. They're so busy with mm-hmm. their day jobs, you know, just mm-hmm. the business of running the city. So they were able to talk to each other. They were able to interact with other cities. I think that urban planners have a, a wonderful and long history of site visits and sister cities and brother cities. I don't know what the difference is, and sort of creating those linkages. But it is a conscious choice. And then I think we do need to come up with some 
interesting and innovative ways to share those solutions in a very resource-constrained environment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, speaking of resource-constrained environment, I think we're out of time, but thank you for sharing your knowledge. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for, uh, for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. For more information about RMI's eLab and to learn how to get involved in its various events, see the link in the show notes. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.